Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Heretics Podcast. I'm Graham Barlow and with me is Damon Smith. And we're taking another trip back to ancient China for Xingyi Part 3. But before we get there, we've got a few little... Uh, well, there's quite a lot to catch up on, isn't there, Damon? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I guess the biggest thing is we've got patrons. We've got uh, patrons, yes. Abs- <laughs> so Thank you very much, amazing. patrons. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, we recorded yesterday. We recorded an episode of Wolf and Angie, so all but one of our patrons uh, have been thanked already profusely on that episode. It hasn't been released yet, and the release date is down to Joe. So probably this episode will go out before that one, given how busy he is. Yeah, he doesn't have a great track record of uh, of releasing things in a timely <laughs> manner. Um, no offense, Joe. <laughs> Uh, well, he, uh, you know, Creative Piano Academy seems to go out on time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But anyway, by the by. But um, so just you know, s- seriously speaking, uh, it's it's been amazing that people kind of care about. I mean, some people we've never met care about what we're doing enough to to become patrons. Uh, you know, sometimes our I used to wonder, you know, we, we seem to have a reasonable number of downloads and online listens, but I was wondering, is that is that really just like uh, software systems downloading copies for their own use kind of thing rather than actual people? Mm. Uh, but it seems there are some, at least a few actual people who care about what we're doing, which is absolutely amazing. Yep. Uh, I've, I've felt a real buzz off that. Um, uh, just fantastic. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to go through the list. Uh, a couple of people have asked to be uh, known by their first name only. Um, but uh, collectively, I would like to uh, give a huge warm thank you to Adam C., Chris Posner, Colm Nami, uh, Goshwa, Glenn Bard, Jonathan Young, Casper, and uh, Tamo. Just a, a great bunch of people who are uh, currently supporting us. We put a, a target of $25 a month. Uh, to effectively cover off the hosting costs for the two podcasts, we have absolutely smashed that. Um, yeah. We're more than double. We're more than double. So that will enable us to do uh, some more stuff around the Grove. Um, and maybe we'll put a little bit higher target on. Um, it, it's sort of... It, it's amazing, uplifting, and, and um, uh, just I felt very, very good about it. Um, just the fact that people care, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, and I think that it it opens the possibility of us using some of the kind of kit that Joe uses to produce Creative Piano Academy. You know, that kind of uses. I mean, nothing like as expensive as the stuff he uses. But you know, um, what what I would say is that you know neither me or Grammar need need this money to earn a living. Every penny of this will be piled back into the project. Um, Absolutely. We need to think how we use that. 
but it is it does give us opportunities that we didn't have before um, and maybe we can use some stuff a bit less amateurish for the Grove development. We also, since we hit our, hit our target uh, amount rather rapidly, we also need to record the um, special exclusive episode for patrons only uh, in the near future. And we will certainly be doing that. And we'll, I think we'll, me and Graham will have a discussion and we pick some fun, unusual and off-the-wall subject for that episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd, li- I'd like to, I mean, personally, I'd like to make it something martial arty. <laughs> What a surprise, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's no secret where my, my sort of uh, interest is. So so that sort of rules out the Gnostic Gospels then, yeah? Um, well, we, we could do I'm it if joking. you want. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I, I, a couple of the, the patrons uh, were already friendly with. Um, one of them, Colin, I've known for a very long time. Um, and um, it, it's... It's really interesting um, that, you know, I, I would guess, uh, given that we never announced this thing until this episode we've just recorded on the Woven Energy podcast, I would guess that most of our patrons have actually come from heretics. So maybe that exclusive episode being something martial arts related uh, isn't such a bad idea. Um, yes. Yeah. Let's do it. Um, cool. And also, you've just recorded a, an, an, well, a new episode of uh, Woven Energy, haven't you? Yeah, so I, I did a bit of reflection. Um, incidentally, if anybody's interested in becoming a patron um, and joining our awesome crew, um, the uh, I, I do reflection notes on the Patreon blog. I've started doing that for each episode, which is really good for me. After the end of every episode, historically, both for Woven Energy and Heretics, I'm like, oh, I wish I'd mentioned dot, dot, dot. And also sometimes I have reflections on... Uh, you know what what things I haven't done very well um, we also had some uh, really useful feedback um, from a gentleman who I'm going to refer to as Mr. Chi um, very thoughtful feedback on uh, the the episodes that we've done on the Song Dynasty uh, he's obviously somebody who knows quite a bit about Chinese history and it's been quite useful mm. um, in terms of um, me thinking about what we haven't covered that we perhaps should have done before we dived into the Song Dynasty. You remember I, I did say I wanted to plough ahead steadily yeah, yeah. Uh, from back in the hand. But but um, but um, so one of the big things, I think, is the concept of the miasma and what that actually means. On the Woven Energy podcast, there are uh, three big episodes on the miasma, 13, 14, and 15 of Woven Energy. That's three hours worth of listening, I'll warn you. Um, And um, so what we thought we'd do is a kind of Miasma for Heretics episode of Woven Energy, which summarizes those three episodes, condenses it down into one episode. So what we can do for Heretics is just refer people over to this one episode, the one that Joe's currently working on. Mm -hmm. Have a listen to that, then come back, and maybe some things will have a bit... um, Uh, more context some of the aspects as I said uh, in terms of history some of the aspects of Chinese history are when you look backwards towards them remember it's a long way back to the Song Dynasty Yeah, yeah. uh, you're looking through the lenses provided by successive generations 
mm. uh, each one of which distorted that history. And um, some uh, aspects of that, for instance, aspects around the An Lushan Rebellion that we mentioned, um, An Lushan being a guy who was earlier than Yufei, uh, but who ended up in a similar position to Yufei, uh, have to be viewed through those successive lenses of, of rewriting of history. I almost said the Confucian rewriting of history. Well, of course, the Confucian learned class were the people who were writing the history in China. There wasn't really very much anybody else doing it. Hmm. Um, but um, our friend Mr. Chi pointed out that there are positive aspects of Confucianism and the Confucianism has acted as a very cohesive force in China. You know, I think one of the things I said is China's uh, the only great civilization that's perpetuated from the ancient world to the present. Mm -hmm. All the other great ancient civilizations are long gone. And, um, you know, Confucianism had a role to play with that. And I agree, I would agree with him on that, um, on that uh, basis. Um, what I what I've been doing is using Confucianism as a sort of metaphor for a, a term that's probably well understood by regular listeners of woven energy, which is a term called exotericism. Um, but perhaps we haven't done enough distinction between uh, exotericism on the one hand and esotericism on the other hand uh, on the Heretics podcast for people who only listen to the Heretics podcast. And so what I'd like to do briefly before crack on with more daring do from you, Faye, mm. uh, is just try to give a brief explanation of the difference between the, these two terms that I use. These are not dictionary definitions. These two words, because the English language doesn't actually have words for the, the, the concepts that I'm trying to convey, we've picked up on these two terms, exotericism and esotericism. If I use Mongolian, the Mongolian language, being an animistic, shamanistic language, does actually have words for these things. Um, one is Sawun. Uh, that would be esotericism, uh, that I'm mapping onto the Mongol word Sawun. And the other one is Morkel, which I would be mapping exotericism onto. Now, to cut a long story short, in terms of spirituality, the... Spirituality, from a shamanist point of view, comes in two major and very distinct forms. One form is spirituality that's based on experimentation, on uh, a closeness to nature, that's based on getting rid of judgments and uh, beliefs and faith and uh, stripping away uh, what is human created within a human being in order to bring a closeness to nature and then allowing nature itself to become the teacher. Um, and this is what shamanic technique's about. And shamanic technique's about taking yourself and your culture out of the equation and learning directly from nature. So that would be, using those Mongol words, that would be sawun, uh, mm -hmm. type of spirituality. In terms of more civil, civilized, uh, settled societies, um, the types of spirituality that those societies have, they tend to be based not on technique and experimentation like shamanism and animism. They tend to be based on faith, on ritual, on belief, and on convention, established conventions. Mm -hmm. And that would be 
represented by the Mongol word Morkel. Um, I'm using Mongol words uh, because these are fairly accurate words for what I'm trying to say. Esotericism and exotericism are just approximations. And so when we talked about the Li and Wen traditions, um, I, I perhaps give the impression that the Li tradition was more uh, towards the Sawan end and the one tradition was more towards the uh, Mokkal end of that spectrum. Mm. Um, but the uh, but, uh, but one of the uh, bits of feedback we had was that actually, if you understand, th this isn't the feedback, this is my, my interpretation of the feedback, if you understand things from the one point of view, then uh, kind of the, the Li movement and the Wen movement have an equality they're equally spiritual if mm. you understand them from an exoteric mortal type of point of view and they're on an equal plane but to me the question is whether they are equal in an esoteric sense using the mongol word sawun are they equal in the sense of sawun and my my postulation is that they are not that uh, the uh, the tr the true meaning of that word Li, the underlying principle of nature, is, is head and shoulders beyond the one tradition when it comes to the Sawun Mongol word end of that spectrum. Sorry, I'm swapping between three different languages. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately <laughs> I don't know I don't know the Chinese words for these things either. I don't even know if there are proper Chinese words for these things. Yeah. Um and so so I do agree that Li and Wen traditions have an equal, uh, equally spiritual and an exoteric sense, but I question whether they are equal in an esoteric sense. And that's really the point I've been trying to make. So in some ways with Confucianism, and I've been given the impression that Confucianism has been damaging to Chinese society, when really what I wanted to say is that exotericism is pretty much universally damaging to all and any society anywhere in the world. Um, and that's really the from from a shamanist point of view. That's really the point I've been trying to make. And, and it was possibly unfair to single out Confucianism, mm. because there are other, certainly other types of exotericism in in China. There have been exoteric uh, Buddhist groups. Uh, there have been uh, exoteric Taoist groups. Uh, there have certainly been exoteric parts of the Li tradition. And also, actually, a little later. Um, I want to get onto the figure of Zhu Xi, uh, a, a sort of a, I don't know what to call him, a sage uh, who lived during the Song Dynasty. He was a contemporary of Yufei, but he was still a child when Yufei died. Uh, so it didn't make sense. In some ways, it would made made more sense to do Zhu Xi first, mm. uh, so to lay the groundwork for discussing a lot of this stuff about Yufei. But what's what's not often taken into account in Chinese history is the rewriting of history that's been done by universally by exoteric leaning people. And um, it, it has become to look like the Li tradition had strong exotericism right from the outset when it, it's pretty clear to me that, that it didn't. That it was, you know, it, it was in, in some ways an archaic revival. Um, but, you know, one of the things we've said on the Woven Energy podcast is that 
esotericism turns into exotericism very, very quickly. Uh, we discussed a particular Japanese tradition that from the from the death of the founder of that particular tradition, it had gone from an extremely esoteric, shamanistic kind of community to a heavily exoteric, faith-belief-based community in a Western sense of those words uh, within a period of 20 years of the death of the founder. Uh, that's how rapidly it can happen. Mm. And, and shamanism and esotericism keep springing up again and again, and, and one of the jobs of esotericists has been to reinterpret that generation upon generation. And one of the things I would like to do, although I know you do like doing stuff about martial arts, I'd also like to do a whole bunch of stuff about secret societies on this podcast to cover off those that kind of idea as well. Um, mm. So, um, cut a long story short, I kind of agree that the Lian Wen movements were equal in terms of exotericism. I disagree that they're equal in terms of esotericism. Um, I, I would like to come back to Mr. Chi's points at more at length in a, in a later episode, possibly in the episode or episodes that we do on Jushi. I think it's more appropriate at that point in time than it is in the discussion of Yufei. I want to keep plowing on with Yufei okay. uh, at this point in time. I think this series on Xingyi is going to be very long, so maybe we get to the death of Yufei, then we do an episode on Jushi. And or the other thing that I mentioned is the sort of proto-industrial revolution uh, during the Song Dynasty. That's quite a strong statement, and I haven't backed it up with any information yet. I'd like to do an episode on that as well. Okay. And so maybe we could do those as a, a a break in the sequence. I just want to say thank you to Mr. Chief for, for the, the very thoughtful feedback that he gave us. It, it, it did make me think. Mm. Um, and so, um, and I posted something about that on the Patreon, uh, the members area um, on Patreon as well. Uh, and like I say, I want that Patreon blog to also be a valuable resource to people. So uh, keep watching it. Everybody who's a patron, everybody who intends to become a patron, keep watching that blog because I'm intending to build that up to uh, to become so, some, somewhat of a valuable resource over time. Yeah. I mean, every episode you're going to be adding notes effectively. Aren't That's you? the idea. Yeah. And other bits and pieces. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So shall we... I think that covers everything. Shall we um, carry on with the life of Yufei? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I believe we got to about 11.29, hadn't we? Yes, that's right. And uh, Prince Kang. So Yufei has enabled this guy to escape the djinn, uh, escape the clutches of the djinn, and uh, by by his uh, rather extended suicide mission that didn't end up in suicide. And so, um, as we said before, the actual emperor, uh, Chinzong, and his father, Huizong, have, uh, are both now in captivity with the Jin. Mm-hmm. And Gaozong, uh, pretty much uh, 1129, declares himself emperor. He becomes emperor. Even though China already has an emperor, uh, he becomes emperor of, I guess, what you would call the new state of the Southern Song Dynasty. This is the start of it. Mm-hmm. And... His new court is based at Hangzhou, which is a very nice place. Even today, it's a very nice place. Um, on the sort of east, towards the east coast of China. Um, now, Gaozong doesn't get off to a very good start. He's, he's only just uh, invested himself as emperor, or had himself invested as emperor, and there's, very quickly there's a sort of attempt at a coup against him. 
throughout his reign, there's a sort of undercurrent of um, feeling that he shouldn't be declaring himself emperor because Qinzong is the emperor of China uh, mm. and he's still alive. Um, and so that the, uh, as part of his own guard actually attempt a coup against him. Uh, well, this is put down by loyalist forces. And so he's um, he sort of manages to establish himself as emperor, but emperor of what? Well, emperor of what you would say the southern half of China. Uh, the Jin have got the north pretty much, and the, the Song have got the south, uh, where previously the Song had both. Um, uh, at this point in time, one of the Confucian scholars stroke officials who had been taken away by the Jin, a guy we mentioned last time called Qin Hui, who'd been taken away by the Jin with the emperor and his father, um, in inverted commas, escapes from the Jin um, and makes his way back to, all the way back to, um, to uh, well, Hangzhou, back to the Song Dynasty, Southern Song Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Now, just have a look on a map how far that is. So I look at Harbin up in Manchuria, and you look where Hangzhou is on the map, uh, and think that that's all that all that territory is occupied by the Jin. Um, he must have been a guy of incredible resourcefulness and daring do to uh, escape uh, to escape under very his good, own very power. Good disguise, maybe. <laughs> yes, and and if he was such a, a um, amazing and uh, brave and resourceful person. You would think that in the rest of his life he would show those same qualities, wouldn't you? Mm. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there's a, there's a, a school of thought that Chen Hui was released by the Jin in return for being a uh, an agent of the Jin, basically mm. uh, a spy, if you want to call it that. And he he goes back to the court and he builds himself uh, rather arrogantly, I think, or rather um, ironically, as a special advisor as an expert on matters pertaining to the jinn and immediately starts pushing uh, the court towards push, signing an unequal peace with the jinn. Mm. Uh, how they didn't see through this guy, I really don't know. Um, but they, he's, he's a, an advocate of peace. Uh, he wants the uh, Song dynasty basically to cave into the jinn and pay them massive tributes and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and he comes up with this famous phrase, the south for the south and the north for the north. What he means is, the Jin are in the north, so let the north be for the northern people. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Song are all now in the south, uh, so let the south be for the for the Chinese, effectively. And this was his famous saying. Um, and the, another thing is that he, he became very influential with the emperor. I mean, he must have had the gift of the gap. There must have been something about him. Uh, I, I often picture, like I said last time, I think, Cao Chu, the bad guy, the big bad guy out of uh, the Water Margin TV mm. series, you know, sort of twiddling his moustache in an evil kind of way mm. uh, whenever I think of Chin Hui, you know. Or maybe in one of the James Bond movies, that that guy who's the head of, what is it called, the bad guy, is it a Spectre or something, who has a cat Blofeld. on his lap, you Blofeld. know? Yeah, <laughs> what's it? Yeah. Uh, Blofeld, yes. He didn't have a moustache uh, <laughs> Or yeah, did he? Or something of like that. Maybe he did. Uh, I don't know. 
but the, the the thing is that it's it's I just don't understand how they didn't see through him, but they didn't. So he obviously he obviously had a, a strong command, as many uh, exponents of Confucianism stroke exotericism do, a strong command of political manoeuvring and machinations because they're good at that stuff because they care about that stuff. Mm. Uh, they care about bureaucracy. They don't care too much about people. These people. Um, and he he became very popular with a lot of the other Confucians at the court, um, and like most uh, Confucians, they they view the military people uh, something with uh, sort of looking down their nose at them uh, with a bit of distaste, almost like a, a bad smell is wafted into the room when a military man comes in. Mm. Um, and this has been true not not just the Southern Song. This has actually been true throughout most of Chinese history. Uh, and the Southern Song was no no exception to this. Um, and so uh, what happens is because this guy and, and others sort of come to an ascendancy in the court, the military advice uh, of people like UFA and, and several others, incidentally, by this time, a lot of the other generals are now looking towards UFA as kind of a beacon or a lead or trying to get getting some of his ideas off him so what you get is quite a few of the generals start emulating his ways and they become quite capable themselves and and uh, they get ignored as well these guys and so uh, they particularly didn't like the way you went about things for instance, instead of I think as we said, instead of, when he, he was often used against bandit groups and rebels and that type of stuff, and instead of killing them, he usually he usually would give them a rousing speech, you know, just stand up, <laughs> get in front of the campfire and and talk them all over, and then join join them into his army. Now you've got to remember that Gaozong's just just uh, narrowly survived a coup from one of his military factions. So and and the memories of the Andushan Rebellion are still strong in China at this point in time, you know. So you can sort of see why they'd be worried about Yufei. Except that, you know, on the other hand, I guess Gaozong was in two minds. Gaozong probably wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for Yufei, saving his neck. And Yufei's got, uh, you know, the, the, the famous tattoo tattooed across his back, proclaiming to all that he's uh, more loyal than anybody else to the dynasty, you know. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> so he he's developing this extremely loyal army, and then, sort of in the in the winter of eleven twenty nine, he he gets stationed. This is your fair, He gets stationed. Um, uh, one of a a, a sequence of, of sort of new southern capitals, as I said, when the when the emperor or the prince is fleeing. Wherever he ends up, um, there are uh, it, it briefly becomes capital, uh, and one of these places was called Jiankang, uh, which is much better known as Nanjing, as in you know the mm. Nanjing massacre, mm. which is actually on the south bank of the Yangtze River. Um, and this this is bad news. So if you if you think that the two major rivers that that traverse China from west to east uh, one is the Yellow River and that's in the north and one is the Yangtze and that's further south and so the fact that the Jin had reached the Yangtze that's a substantial part of the that's pretty much all of the original Chinese heartland that has been 
uh, invaded by them. Mm. Um, and you face um, commanding officer, this guy we mentioned, Du Chong, isn't really interested in getting himself killed by attacking these guys. So you think of this Yufei and, and the Chinese forces on the south bank of the river, the Jin are on the north bank of the river. And uh, Yufei uh, just pleads with him over and over again to be allowed to attack. You know, this is this is one of the things that, that's become famous in terms of Xingyi's uh, fighting attitude. Uh, and one of the things I've said is even if there was no episode evidence whatsoever linking Xingyi to Yufei, uh, in terms of historical evidence, uh, certainly the attitude uh, of a very attacking art is is fits both the characters of both Yufei and Xingyi very well. Um, and this idea that the attack and defense don't have to be separate quantities, they can be one in the same thing. Uh, again, applies to both the military strategy implied by Yufei and the strategy, the fighting strategy of Xing Yi as a martial art today. Mm. And so, anyway, uh, Yufei increasingly gets uh, frustrated with the, his superior Du Chong, and he sort of he doesn't outright he doesn't outright criticize him, but he sort of he gets a bit of egg on his face because Yufei's making him look bad. He um he uh. It's making him look like a bit of a coward, basically. Uh, Yufei just wants to attack all the time, and all he ever wants to talk about is attacking. Mm. And Du Chong wants none of it. And so Du Chong sort of hatches a plan to get rid of Yufei once and for all. Uh, and he, um, so he leaves Yufei behind. <laughs> he retreats and leaves Yufei behind with about 20,000 men to mount a kind of last stand. You know, General Custer. Uh, it's last stand type of thing. Yeah. Uh, as a rear guard, uh, while Du Chong uh, flees south uh, with the bulk of the army to to Hangzhou, which is where the the emperor ends up. Sounds a bit like the Spartans um, as well. Yeah, well, from, from Yufei's yeah. point of view, <laughs> it's certainly not, you know, not Du Chong's point of view. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yufei, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely, it is like the Spartans. Yeah. Um, and so. A lot of people do indeed get killed at Nanjing. I mean, they're massively outnumbered by the Jin. But you, you himself isn't, and and pretty much his his superior officer has has fled, legged it, um, and so he's kind of the most senior guy on the ground now, for the first time, hmm. and um, he's able to gather gather. A band of like-minded guys, uh, some of them are the ex-bandits that he's uh, sort of roped into his army, and and not only does he, you know, make the last stand, he actually manages to counterattack. Um, <laughs> he loves to attack, <laughs> and this is this, yeah, absolutely. And his uh, his little force gives the the Jin one hell of a shock. Uh, they get just a massive shock because their numbers are huge and his his force is very small. And um, yeah, he um, he gives them a bloody nose and he basically rallies the remaining forces in the area. Uh, and like I say, you know, you're right. It's like Thermopylae, isn't it? It's like the Spartans holding the pass at Thermopylae, facing down the Persian Empire. It's exactly like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
and and they actually managed to bring the entire Jin invasion. We're talking about a whole dynasty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, single-handedly, these guys managed to bring that to a crashing halt at the river. And and again, is it is it slightly geographical? In like for Mipoli, it was the the, the very narrow pass. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. I wonder if this is it like is... The, the only crossing point on the river. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it wasn't the only crossing point on the river. This is this is how the Jin eventually managed to get round it. Which is again what happened to the, the Spartans too. They they got round the back of them, didn't they? Exactly, exactly. So, so in the end, the Jin are completely unable to progress against Euphrates' army, and they send a second, very large army upstream uh, to cross over the river upstream, and then come around the back and outflank Yue. Um, but Yue manages to, to sort of outmaneuver them. Uh, he obviously has good intelligence. He obviously knows these guys are coming, and he does a, a bit of, uh, should we say, agile footwork in a modern martial arts sense. <laughs> and he manages to get his men out, escape down the river, and, and get back to jo- rejoin the larger force at Hangzhou. And obviously, Du Chong is probably not very happy to see you still alive. And having made, you know, having given the Jinn a, a bloody nose, and, you know, objective achieved, everybody, the, the bulk of the army has escaped. Mm. Um, and so this is, this is time, I guess, time to start talking a little bit about Yu's battlefield strategy. How is he doing this? You know, everybody else is getting killed. All the other commanders are getting killed. Their forces are getting wiped out. And then these are large forces. And then with a relatively small force, Yufei is... is um, is actually uh, not just not dying, but he's actually causing significant harm to the Jin dynasty, almost single-handedly. Like I said, there were a few other generals who started emulating him, and so there were, uh, there were only like two or three of them, but you know, uh, as time went by, the people who had been influenced by him, the number of those people grew over time, and it wasn't just in his own army. Mm. Um, so... This comes back to the Li movement, and this is one of the things that's preserved in the Xingyi tradition, in our oral tradition, and in, in the way we, we practice our art. So around this time, the sort of success of Yufei has applying different strategies to different situations. These, if you like, it's that pung bird lying on the roof of his house. This is the Li movement. The strategies that he employs come from nature. The strategies that he employs are the strategies that are employed by wild animals in defense of themselves. So we said last time he quite liked the horse strategy, but it wasn't the only one that he applied. Hmm. Um, and these different strategies, these different flavors of different wild animals. Now remember, here we're talking about real wild animals. We're not talking about somebody's imagination of what they are. Hmm. We're talking about Members of the Lee movement, you know, we talked about like Fan Quan, they go and look what, unlike the previous art generations of artists, they go and look what these animals are really doing, what they're really like, and you get a certain realism in their artwork. And the animals aren't just stood there being illustrative, the animals are doing stuff, they're pursuing their lives. And this is the meaning of the word Lee. The meaning of the word Lee, or Ri in Japanese, is the underlying principle of nature. It's taking nature as a teacher rather than taking human beings and human knowledge as a teacher. And so they, they learned the Lee movement prepared the ground for Yufei's application of animal strategies on the battlefield. And 
These animal strategies, we use this word Xing, which is in the name Xing Yi. A Xing is a flavor or uh, a shape that an animal makes in order to fill out its ecological niche, or its biological niche. If you like, the environment and the context in which it has to live and hunt and defend itself and, and counter predation, that's a shape. Like, you know, like those children's toys where you put different shaped blocks in different holes. Mm. The animal has to make a shape or a shing with its life and its strategy and the way that it conducts itself that has a shape that fits neatly into that environmental niche in which it lives. It's nature reflecting, our animals reflecting nature directly. And we talk about this quite a bit on this podcast episode that I've been referring to of Woven Energy. That effect, we've effectively recorded a Woven Energy podcast episode specifically for the Heretics podcast. Mm. Um, and like I say, we've covered a lot of that in a bit more detail on that episode. Um, also, the so so that's the word Xing out of Xing Yi. And the, I, um, the question that, sorry, mate. I was going to say. I mean, I don't know. I don't think we've got time to get into this in this episode, and we should do it in an, a, a subsequent episode. But I can, in the back of my mind, I can hear uh, a million Xing Yi practitioners of the modern age <laughs> crying out in yeah. unison going no it doesn't mean that it, like shing just means it's just a double-handed push <laughs> yeah yeah the, the tiger thing yeah no it's no. not tiger strategy it's just a double-handed it's just push, a push yeah. like have you ever seen a tiger push anyone no, <laughs> <laughs> yes. no. All, all tigers double-handed push people no but uh, um but, but seriously uh pe- people will say that the shing bit literally literally means the form, the shape, the the, yeah, the appearance and it of does, a person. It it does mean the the shape, yeah. But as yeah. I've said, it doesn't mean the shape of. Uh, it's not like you, you, when you do horse shing or tiger shing, you don't stand like a tiger and you don't stand like a horse. You know, it's a matter of fact that you don't. Mm. So you know, the you know there are reasons which we are going to cover, which is why we've intended to do these episodes methodically. A lot of knowledge, a lot of understanding was lost from Xing Yi in many, many different uh, modern versions uh, by virtue of exoteric uh, traditions being applied to it, uh, a kind of dumbing down process, if you like. Those exoteric traditions included Confucianism, which we've mentioned. It included communism, uh, included nationalism. And it included not just a, a sort of general dumbing down that comes naturally with those things, but it also can, included specific activities that were conducted in order to actively dumb down the art. Uh, and these revolve around two, the, 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 there are many of these, but uh, two of the main ones were uh, a, a thing called Kuoshu on national arts uh, that was conducted by the Gomindang Nationalist Party. Uh, and another one called Modern Wushu that was uh, conducted by the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. And so I've done Xing Yi. Uh, I know you've done Xing Yi a long time, mate, but I've done it a lot longer. Than, I'm well aware of what people are going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, whether and, we should just bookmark it now and come back to it later when we maybe get to the... Well, we're going to come back to it. The, the whole purpose of doing this in a th- methodical way, moving forwards, building building and building and building from the beginning uh, is in order to to head off that kind of thing. 
Uh, but of course, we can't address it until we get a lot further ahead. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we just uh, stick just a to pin see in that for now. down the line. Yeah, we'll yeah, stick a yeah. pin in it for now, and then just to let people know that we are going to come back to that point because I think it'll be the the, the thing that people pick up on. Yeah. So um, there was a funny story. I don't know if it was you. Uh, it might have been you. I don't know. It was years ago, years and years ago, and somebody was arguing that. Um, was that there was only one movement in swallow or something like this? It's the usual kind of thing on some discussion group, and then, and then somebody sent them a video of the guy's own teacher doing more than one movement in swallow. <laughs> <laughs> There's also that aspect when you talked about Shingi in the West. Shingi is not a popular art, so if you have a little bit of knowledge of it, then uh, you are a big fish in a small pond. I'm afraid because. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really really there's very little knowledge in the west i'm not to say there's none there's some there's some good people in the west uh but there's very very little knowledge about it actually in the west about Xingyi. And, and and people get quite quite sort of i don't know uh, quite exoteric about it they get quite fanatical about it don't they that, that they're right uh, and they get upset they, they get, get upset. very upset yeah um but i i've found that people in not just in Xingyi, but in every walk of life uh, people with a lot of knowledge uh, of any subject tend to be the ones who don't get upset. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, not not that I claim to have a lot of knowledge, but just that's my experience of other people. In in every walk of life, in business and in, you know, uh, they, they tend, and people with a lot of, a lot of understanding, a lot of breadth and depth, of understanding of any subject, they tend not to make uh, be very black and white about everything either. Mm. Uh, every you know, real history is very complicated. Uh, real fighting is very complicated. It's very chaotic, um, and you know, uh, this is why it's important to study multiple martial arts. It's very very important because yes, absolutely. Uh, one of my teachers said to me, you know, you, you roll the dice. Um, on, on the table and he says it, it came up and it was a four or something and he, he says um, what's what's the number underneath um, well both sides of a dice always add up to seven so you can work that out you know a six and a one a five and a two and so on um, and so you, you would save three on the other side but he said unless you pick it up and actually look you um, you don't know you don't know and what I've also seen is that uh, people who study, people who are most pedantic about their martial arts tend to study relatively few martial arts. <laughs> and people who study a lot of different martial arts tend to be a lot less pedantic. And the reason is that, you know, you don't know. We're talking about Yakuza on, on some of the episodes, yeah? Mm. Uh, if you're playing dice with Yakuza or cards with Yakuza, it's highly likely that dice has been nobbled, you know? So... Mm. <laughs> So um, it's important to pick it up and have a look. And, and when you're understanding the study, the subject of martial art, uh, which is effectively just humans uh, understanding human beings in conflict. Um, and within, you know, if you want to think of shamanism, that's the understanding of human beings coming together um, within nature. That like two ends of a spectrum. Human beings in contact, that, that's it. And, and that has many, many different aspects. And in terms of the outward visual appearance of different martial arts, you know, in terms of their, the, sh the shapes they make, if you like, you want to use the word shape, like saying like that, the shapes that are made when the person does that particular martial art, 
um, those shapes are um, that they're not they're not the root they're not what gives rise to those shapes there are there's energy there's movement there's structure there's strategy the strategy implies the structure the strategy implies the movement the, the, the strategy implies uh, the technique and the the movement of the energy uh, and uh, creates those structures different martial arts have different structures that's because different martial arts use different strategies mm. different martial arts use different timings and distances and rhythms and all this kind of stuff use different weapons all of those things fall out of the underlying principles of those arts and so getting pedantic about that kind of stuff i mean you see it again and again on on youtube videos you know uh just some some guy who's a real stickler for his supposedly traditional art that was probably invented during the 1960s um or formulated during the 1960s ends up getting panned by some kid who's done like five lessons of mma you know yeah, yeah. um it's it that happens because the belief of the person comes to take precedence over reality now here's a, I might, since we've made controversial statements, I might as well make another one. Yeah, there's no on. such thing. There is no such thing in the martial arts. There's no such thing as good technique. There's only appropriate technique. There's only technique appropriate to the situation that you find yourself in. Uh, there's no such thing as good and bad technique. And so what uh, people who employ animal strategies and Xingyi is certainly not the only martial art in China. That, that implies animal strategies. It's not the only martial art in China that claims a descent from Yufei. Um, actually, it's quite interesting that most of the martial arts that claim descent from Yufei um, do use animal strategies, uh, even though uh, they don't necessarily claim any allegiance to to Xingyi, for instance, or Xinyi. Mm. Um, and so, you know, to me, the... The shamanistic trait of using animal strategies and animal methods in fighting um, is is a bigger thing than a little box labeled Xingyi. Not mm. not a smaller thing. Yeah, it's much bigger and more encompassing and more important. So from one point of view, just call it whatever you want. Put whatever label you want on that box. It doesn't take away from the fact that looking what wild animals do and then bringing back that and applying it in, in fighting doesn't work. If it didn't work, why do so many different martial arts all over the world, not just in China, not just in Japan, do exactly that? Uh, they do it because it's useful and because it works. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, one of the things that the, uh, the Jin used to do was they were experts of the cavalry charge as, as we've said many times and what mm. they used to do was they would see a chinese army and they would just charge it and because they were such good horsemen and good archers and and good at maneuvering uh, they would just take it to pieces just make it disrupt they would disrupt the army and and just cut it to pieces and that happened again and again and again and again and it was basically massed infantry the bulk of other used although they used cavalry the bulk of these armies were massed infantry the chinese armies mm. and and that happened time and time again until yufei and his fellow generals at around this time made changes they started applying stuff from the lee movement um 
and they started to get some success. And one of the things that they gained success through was being able to face down the charge. They started training together as a unit. Uh, they started becoming one, if you like, one being, which is a very shamanistic thing, rather than an army being a bunch of individuals added together, they became they, they became a single organism. Uh, and they had what's called integrity. Um, and they managed to face down these cavalry charges with their spears, whereas previous armies had lost their nerve when the cavalry started coming at them. Yufei's army didn't, uh, and some of the armies of the other generals didn't. And they adapted these um, specialist weapons that would attack under the spears. So the, the spears tend to be held quite high. So for instance, in Pao even in modern Shingi, the spear is held quite high. That gives room for other soldiers to move underneath the spears and use specialist weapons like the Jamma Dao and, and other, horse, other specialist weapons for attacking horses, mm. uh, for attacking the flanks, the belly, the legs of the horses. And this is swallow strategies. It's a change of height, just like a swallow changes height in flight. Mm. This is the change of height. You go from high, high to low. Um, and through this kind of strategy, the um, the jinn started getting shocked. I mean, the, those charges against, cavalry charges against infantry, the, the jinn applied, they'd always, always worked. They'd worked, they'd conquered the whole of northern China with this, and it always worked. And then it just all of a sudden, it stopped working. What was the difference? My judgment on the difference was the Lee movement. Uh, they started applying clever strategy, effective strategy. If you want to talk about it in terms of technique, they started applying appropriate technique to the situation, not good technique, not best practice technique, as had been applied previously. Uh, they started applying technique appropriate to the situation. The horses of the gin, the legs, the front legs were unarmored. So it makes perfect sense to hold them off with lances, with a solid row, uh, because that their effectiveness is in breaking down the line. Well, famously, nobody ever did break down Yufei's line. And then mm. to change height, come underneath that, take the horse's legs out, it, it's, it's pretty messy, it's pretty unpleasant, but the bottom line is it's very, very effective. It's not good technique, it's appropriate technique. Um, and so in a... Um, uh, sudden kind of uh, shocking attack and and appearing to be in a kind of defensive situation um, the, the the enemy attacks Yufei and these other generals they fully expect that, that line to crumble as I said uh, but what they get is a sudden shocking attack uh, which they hadn't encountered before. And this is the horse strategy. This is the horse strategy. Um, you know, the horse, we, we'll go, we said we'd do a whole episode on this, but the horse doesn't want to fight. It'll move around you in a circle. It'll stamp its feet. It doesn't want to fight. But if you go too close, you will get absolutely clobbered. Mm. Um, there's, a great, um, there's a great video on YouTube where somebody put, hurts a horse when he's putting a horseshoe on it. Oh, uh, and that, if you yes. slow it down, yeah, yeah. When you slow it down in one, in one frame, the guy is in the frame, and then the next guy, one, the, the horse's leg is stuck out, and he's completely disappeared from shot. <laughs> yes, yeah. The horse is kicked. Um, there's like a corral, isn't there? It, it's kicked through yeah. the gap 
between the two exactly. bits of wood. Uh, which is the which is the saying about the horse is that the horse crashes through the corral. The horse looks for the weak point, mm. and it, horse strategy is absolutely great for you know a friend who does Xing Yu's asking my advice. He had a friend who was a really good kickboxer, and he was having a problem with him in in sparring, and he asked me, you know, what he should do about it. He says, well, go go and try horse strategy against him, and. Um, and he came back and, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's it's picking what's appropriate. It's not picking what's uh, correct. That's probably the best way to put it. Because these kind of ideas of correctness, it happens in the business world as well, doesn't it? You know, in the business world, you get, oh, I, every time I'm in a meeting and somebody mentions best practice, I just cringe, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody gets a form out and says, oh, we've got to start got to start doing all these things because it's best practice. I'm like, who says it's best practice, you know? Uh, where's the evidence, you know? And that comes back to the nature thing as well, you know. And again, a lot of these people uh, who are pedantic about their martial arts, they don't do very much. They don't seem to do very much sparring. They don't seem to do very much, you know, uh, testing of whether the thing actually works or not, you know. Uh, and when you're in that kind of a bubble, when you're not actually doing it against a resisting opponent, for instance, uh, it's very, very easy to think you you know best. You know, every time you try it, it works. Yeah, every time you try it, it works because it's set up, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is the... The first time I've heard your your theory on this, there's no such thing as good practice. But I mean, I'm just trying to. This is the first time I've heard it. So I'm just processing it in my head. Uh, I mean, there there's certainly. I'm I'm just re- applying it to the the martial art I was doing yesterday, which was uh, jujitsu. There's there's certainly sure. um, there's a right way to do things if you want them to work. Yeah, exactly. But you only know the right way to do them when you try them on somebody who's trying to stop you doing them. That's the point. Yeah, that's true as well. Yes. I mean, if they're not trying to stop you, how do you ever find out what the best <laughs> practice for the situation yeah. else is? So, so what yeah, I mean so, is by yeah. there's no... So I, but, I mean, I, I, in one direction, I thought, well, there's a right way to do things in a wrong way that you could be taught like by someone who's done it before. Yeah. But equally, when I apply things in sparring, I quite often apply, say, like an arm bar, and I do everything wrong, but the guy still taps. Yeah. Because, because yeah. it was appropriate to the moment. I mean, like there's a big thing sometimes about not crossing your ankles, for example, it, when you do certain arm bars. And quite often, yeah. I just cross my ankles anyway because it feels right, and the guy yeah, still yeah. taps. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he taps, he taps, right? Yeah. You've created Graham Graham version of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, but I think you said, you know, in BJJ, there are many different flavors, aren't there? Because it's a big art, and lots of different people around the world practice it. Different teachers have different specialisms. Yes, they have their own style, don't they? Yeah, it's not like one martial art, is it? It's like a no, whole community of different martial arts. Well, Xingyi is no different. It's a lot less popular than BJJ, but it is quite popular in China, and it's no different. You know, and, and saying Xingyi is like this and Xingyi is like that. I mean, I've I've studied with two different teachers in exactly the same lineage, in the same tradition, uh, taught by, uh, you know, two generations up, coming down from the same guy, and they're very, very different from each other in terms of how they teach mm. and their own uh, their own way of doing things, you know. So, and, and I don't have any problem with that, you know. I'm quite happy to do it anyway, you know. Um, but um, one of the interesting oral tradition again um, is that um, the the foot soldiers, you know, the the, the this is just all tradition. This is nothing. There's nothing recorded in history here. But one yeah. of the, the the many many long-standing oral traditions is that a link between Xingyi and eagle claw, 
Yes. Uh, that, that would be Eagle Claw, Shaolin Eagle Claw, um, Kung Fu, if you like. Um, yes, that's right. Um, that's another thing, that word Kung Fu. Um, you know, <laughs> People yeah. really, really don't understand what that means, do they? Uh, judging by all the stuff slagging down Kung Fu on YouTube, you know. Um, so, Eagle Claw. Uh, the, 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 one of the many legends goes that Eagle Claw was used to teach the, the, the conscript troops because teaching them Shingi was too difficult, or Shinyi was too difficult. So they taught the conscripts Eagle Claw. Um, and actually, uh, if you take Shingi Eagle, uh, if, if I was to pick one of the, the 12 animals that was the easiest to teach, it probably is eagle, you mm. know. And so if I wanted to teach somebody in a hurry, that's probably the one I would pick. Yes, because it's it's, it's the most obviously practical, isn't it? It's Yeah, yeah, it's, it, and you can do it. You can do it with a bit of muscle. It yeah. doesn't need a lot of finesse. Uh, and you could turn it quite easily into sort of what they would call an external style, couldn't you? You know, quite easily. So... Um, so I think that this, this, whether that's you know which is a chicken and egg in that story, yeah. I don't know. I mean, but 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 eagle claw that I've seen looks kind of nothing like Shingi. But we're talking a thousand years after the event, aren't we? So <laughs> yeah, but um, that I I maybe we've seen different eagle claw, mate. But you know, years ago I did some practice with some eagle claw guys. A uh, long time even before I met you, years and years ago. Mm. Uh, and a they, they knew about this sort of link to Yufei. Uh, and and B, there there was they had the sense that there was sort of this friendship between Shingi people and Eagle Claw people, and where that came from, I don't know. Um, but you know, it, I I sort of disagree on that. I see a lot of Shingi Eagle Claw to me looks like Shingi done Shingi Eagle done rather more externally than it would be done by a Shingi practitioner. That's what it looks like to me. You know? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, defer uh, to your, I'll defer to your opinion on that because I, mean, I don't know yeah. much about Eagle Claw. It's just what I've seen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they do they do a lot of spear in Eagle Claw, which makes you know makes perfect sense if the story was true. But who knows, you know? Who knows? Uh, well, we, we'll find out how much there is to know about that as we progress forwards through time. Um, mm. So one of the things I really want to do with this is is not stop at the end of the Song Dynasty and then jump to the end of the Ming Dynasty in terms of the history of Xingyi. I just want to keep ploughing on through through the Yuan Dynasty, through the Ming Dynasty, and we'll see what there is to know about that. It's often claimed that there is no connection, um, but I've never seen anybody making that claim actually analysing those two time periods that, mm. that would be needed to make the link between the two. So we'll certainly do that on this series. Um, and so... The um, use of sort of uh, aggressive rapid-fire archery as well to keep the enemy pinned down by sort of closing the hand-to-hand uh, is a very tiger type of strategy. Um, and this is certainly something uh, that, that, as we said, remains in Xingyi. Uh, whether they actually put a bow in their hand or not, they've got the movements to do that. And so, of, uh, and you know, in, in some of the older schools of Xingyi, Xingyi is actually taught at, at sort of two levels. Uh, there's individual fighting and then there's sort of massed fighting. And so, you know, one of the things uh, we used to do was have a number of people in a line with spears. Uh, it's not a huge army or anything. It's like three guys, you know. Um, but that makes for some very interesting things. You know, you don't necessarily attack the guy that's in front of you. Sometimes it's more effective to attack the guy who's on either on either side. Hmm. While one of your colleagues deals with the guy who's in front of you, for instance. Um, so, 
jumping back out of that, because uh, we've probably spent rather too long on that, longer than I wanted. Um, it's my fault, sorry. It, uh, that's quite all right, mate. In, in 11.30, the Sage Juicy, I don't know what else to call him other than a, a, a Sage, uh, is born. So it'll give you an idea. So you face here at his prime, and Juicy is born. So when we come on to Juicy, you'll see this is this is the time period we're gonna uh, gonna start from. Mm. In so that's in eleven thirty. Then in eleven thirty-one, Chin Hui, um, the the mustache twirling. I don't know if really he had a mustache, but the mustache twirling uh, Jin spy uh, becomes actually becomes Chancellor of the Southern Song Empire. Uh, so Chancellor to the Emperor, uh, incredibly powerful position. And he was, as I said, he was originally captured along with Emperor uh, Huizong and um, and his son. Uh, and he escaped from the Jin. Uh, he sold himself to the Sun Court as a Jin expert. Uh, yeah, he develops rapidly develops a very intense dislike for Yufei, uh, and sort of fears the growing power and popularity of Yufei's army. And he's immediately, basically, on becoming Chancellor, he immediately starts influencing the Emperor Gaozong to acquiesce to the Jin, uh, to create a peace treaty, which does actually happen eventually, uh, to pay a lot more in tribute to the Jin than they have been doing. Believe it or not, they have actually been paying the Jin tribute, despite all of this invasion and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and more than anything else, to keep this guy Yufei on a tight leash, uh, the Jin really don't like Yufei for obvious reasons, and Chin uh, Hui doesn't like him either, and uh, he starts influencing the Emperor. So you see, this is why the the Emperor uh, Gao Zong ends up with this kind of um, dual mm. um, dual view of Yufei. Mm. Uh, he's he's on the one hand, he's grateful to the guy, he sort of believes in the guy's loyalty. The guy's shown him nothing but loyalty. Yufei never once throughout his entire career ever did what An Lushan did. He never, ever threatened the court with his army. Never once. Mm. The reason for that is he actually genuinely was a good guy. He genuinely had the best interests of China at heart, and he was well aware that seven years of civil war are not in the best interests of China by anybody's definition of the word. And so... What happens is, uh, as soon as Qin Hui becomes chancellor, uh, he appoints Confucian civilians in charge of the army. And uh, Yufei pretty much <laughs> obviously says, this is a bad idea, guys. Um, and um, But uh, Qin Hui, obviously, with his distaste for things military, thinks civilian Confucian uh, scholars will be much better at running the army than these riffraff military guys. And then pretty much immediately they find out that Yufei was right. Uh, and lots and lots of Song troops actually defect over to the Jin uh, as a result of this. Hmm. Um, and so pretty quickly Yuz returned to command of the army. Um, but by this time the Emperor is, I think, starting to get really confused. And he starts basically from this point onwards flipping one side to the other between Yufei on the one hand and, and Qin Hui on the other and back again. Hmm. Actually, Gao Zong talked a really good tune about uh, wanting to be firm with the Jin. Um, but in his actions, he was timid. He he didn't actually ever, very often, 
want to act upon his stated goal of recapturing the recapturing the the north of China, if you like. Um, and he starts to uh, go into a sort of uh, a, a very confused, almost schizophrenic cycle where he's oscillating uh, from one one extreme to the other in terms of where his support lies and he um, he's he listens to Chin Hui and he, he starts to try to get this peace treaty together with the Jin but then coming up in sort of 1132 things change somewhat markedly and I'm wondering if given that we've done about an hour yeah <laughs> that change would be a good point to start the new is it part four we'll be up to yeah I think this is part, three uh, part now, yeah. four from uh, just there because if I start getting into that change we'll be another half hour on this episode at least okay um, so uh, it's taking quite a few uh, we're just taking quite a few episodes to get the end of life of you fair but I think you're such a cool guy I think it's worthwhile you know yeah yeah I agree I agree and uh, it doesn't matter how long it takes to get all the way to the end does it really so so let's just keep going yeah, yeah, absolutely. Plan. I mean, we we will have to take a break in the Xing Yi episodes at some point in time because I think this could be like a fifteen episode set or something yeah. like that, you know. But um, but we could um, yeah, we could intersperse it. But I don't think it's right to cut it off in the middle of Yufei's life. We maybe do a couple yes. of yeah. We should finish Yufei's life and then we'll do it. We'll do something else and then we'll come back to Xing Yi. Awesome, mate. Great. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.